Hello, friends, family, former lovers. Welcome to an episode of Certified Forgotten. I assume somebody has to I see your reaction, Donato. Some of our former lovers have to listen to the show. I am, as always, one half your Matt hosts. I am Matt Monagle. Um, I am joined by my partner in crime, Matt Donato, to bring you some of the best underseen horror movies and horror sequels uh, of all time, apparently, this episode. What do you think? Uh, our first like franchise horror sequel, correct? Today, that that is that is where we're at. Correct. If you think of like the the big, and we'll get into it, but if you think of like the big horror franchises, this is one that I thought we would never touch. It super qualifies, and I think it's super appropriate for us to be talking about. So, um, I'm really excited about this one. But yes, if you had told me at the outset of our journey that we would be featuring a Hellraiser movie on this, I would have been like, you have no idea what it is that we're trying to do, or like what our site is built for. And I'm like, nope, nope. Actually, it's perfect. And actually, a lot of the Hellraiser uh, direct-to-video sequels do fit our criteria at ten. At, now at the ten mark, um, I yeah. think the last like I, I was looking. I think the last five or so at, they all fit. Like, luckily, most of them suck, and we're not going to have to do that. And if some lunatic comes on trying to tell me that like Judgment is worth a re- reassessment, uh, we're just going to never air that. <laughs> but. Uh. Oh, look, someone's getting very animated in the green room. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that the, the the number of Rotten Tomatoes reviews says more about the movies than it does about our podcast. But I digress. Matt, we do have a guest who's going to come in here swinging about how much this is a movie that you should watch. Skip a bunch of the stuff in the middle and watch this one. I want to know who our guest is, and I want to know what they do and where they rank for. Well, you know who our guest is, uh, but no one else does. So at this point, I will introduce who we have brought today. Uh, fresh off their <laughs> accidental deletion of Twitter, um, we have entertainment journalist and podcast host. You've seen her everywhere, uh, Nerdist, anywhere you want to talk about pop culture. It is Rosie Knight. Hello. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Welcome to the show, Rosie. I feel like You've been somebody that's been on Donato's and I, our radar for a very, very long time to be a guest, and you're just super fucking busy. I don't know anyone else to put it. Like, <laughs> you are truly an, an inspiration in the sense of, like, you are out there, you are lining up work, you're putting in quality criticism for a, just a huge variety, like an explosive variety of publications. So with all of that going on and it being the holidays, we're very glad that you took a little bit of time to come oh. join us. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And yeah, I think um, I worked for a long time in like bars and uh, shops and restaurants. And I feel like when I transitioned full time into writing, I, I kept <laughs> that mentality about the amount of work you have to do. But yeah, no, I'm super stoked to be here. I, one of my favorite pieces uh, that I've written it was for you guys about a movie that I feel like is similar to in in kind of tone and theme, these kind of like weird internet scare movies mm-hmm. which is something that i'm like super into as, as like a deep subgenre. so I'm, I'm really excited and hellraiser is as many people do know like one of my favorite franchises so i'm stoked to be talking about a hellraiser film yeah we have absolutely no shortage of things to talk about uh, when we talk about the movie but before we get to that point i want to talk a little bit about you because i have known you for a long time um you know we connected on twitter before you deleted it and then you know in different forums and different film critic communities as well but I actually don't know a lot about your background as a writer and um, how you came to focus on genre specifically. So as we do with all of our guests, we're going to start with those first horror experiences. What were the the films, the movies, the books or comics that kind of introduced you to the genre at a younger age and made you think that this was something that you wanted to keep an eye on, focus on, be an important part of the type of things that you want to write about? Oh, 
I feel like horror has been in my life for such a long time. I feel like the VHS generation, like we were, we had so much access to it. I think that my earliest memories of it were probably less direct horror. Like when I was a really little kid, like I think a lot about um, that Ron Howard movie, Willow. Um, it's this like really weird movie with Warwick Davis where he is like a, a young aspiring sorcerer who goes on a fantasy adventure. I love it, but it's terrifying. It has these huge practical uh, death dogs, they call them. They were pit bull dogs with practical masks. And I remember like they tear up all these babies, uh, you know, cribs and they chase down a woman and kind of eat her. And I always remember that being like the scene that I wanted to watch it so much, but I didn't want to watch it at all. And that was when I was, I was born in 88. So that movie was in my life from when I was a little kid. But I mean, there were so many, I grew up in the wake of like, I remember the first time that somebody else I knew watched Nightmare on Elm Street and all the parents in the community had to like have a conversation about it so that their kids didn't watch it because she was up all night. So it was like that specter. I think one of the earliest movies I remember watching that was like a proper horror movie is probably Child's Play. Um, I thought it was so great and not scary at mm -hmm. all. And I thought I was really brave. I also remember being terrified of the original Frankenstein. So that was like oh, really yeah. strange. I was, I was really scared of the notion of horror movies. I remember I would be, I would love to read the back of a horror movie in like a video shop. And I remember there were some films like Edward Scissorhands, um, Nightmare on Elm Street, but like these movies where the idea of them was so much scarier than when I kind of sat down and watched them. And I think that is a big part of what drew me to horror was that kind of enchanting spookiness. And also there were so many formative movies for me, like uh, Adam's Family and these kind of like Nightmare Before Christmas when I was a bit older and stuff like there was, a lot of movies that were in that horror spectrum, Beetlejuice, that was like a perennial kids like movie that we would watch when I was a kid. So there was just a lot of movies in that space that I loved. And then really, probably for me, one of the biggest memories I have was like watching I Know What You Did Last Summer at a sleepover and and then really quickly afterwards watching like Scream 2 when my dad bought it on VHS. And I really have those two distinct memories of like, oh, slasher movies are like a thing that I love. And I needed to know about them and I needed to watch every single one. And where I grew up, there was this unbelievable indie video shop just called The Film Shop. And um, they had like every VHS, like that was where I got Suspiria. I mean, every DVD, they, that was where I got Suspiria from. That was where I watched a lot of Hitchcock movies like Rope and stuff like that. So yeah, it's just always been a part of my life, but it's definitely, it's kind of funny to me that I've ended up veering more into like comic books, which are one of my biggest lifelong passions. But horror, definitely when I was a kid, like I used to read Empire Magazine constantly, Fangoria that I would get from the car boot sale. Like I wanted to be a film director and I wanted to make horror. So that was kind of the the driving force. And now I'm just like, I still just a huge fan. Yeah, we talk a lot about like the video store experience and like looking at the movie covers and things of that nature and, and how formative that was. But you know, it, it is interesting. I hadn't thought about sort of like how horror was introduced to you, especially if you're a child of the 90s, right? Like you wouldn't even see horror trailers. You would have to go see something mm -hmm. that was like PG-13 and like the projectionist basically put in something that was probably a little too hard in terms of the trailer package. That was sort of the only way <laughs> that you get introduced to a lot of these things. And it makes me think about, you know, when I was 
fresh out of college, I taught like a middle school course because I want to do like an after school thing on film studies. And I was like, oh, what, what, you know, talking to this group of like, I don't even know how old they are, 12 year old, 13 years old. I was asking what's, you know, what, what is a movie coming out that you guys are excited about? And they were all like the strangers. We all want to watch the strangers. When I was that age, that would have been, you could not have been Mm -hmm. introduced to that, right? Like it was not something you wouldn't have seen the trailer. You know, you would have had to gone to the video store and your parents would have like you out of that aisle if they saw you lingering too long. So yeah, I do. I feel like we lost the sense of the taboo when um, everything became available all at once. Definitely. I mean, in England as well. I mean, I'm pretty sure you can fact check me, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was still banned under video nasty laws till I was like 12 and been till like the year 2000. And I'm, I, I remember when they started showing it on TV, I'd already seen it on VHS. It was still just one of the best films I've ever seen. And I I love that movie so deeply. And that was like one of the first times that I really started to understand the, the way you draw the line between like the end of that movie to like slasher movies and kind of started Mm -hmm. to put together those themes and, and the kind of theory of those films. But yeah, I mean, the taboo was there. Like those movies were banned. Video nasty was a thing. And it was also when I was growing up slightly long enough that you could start to read articles or books or essays about people writing about the idea of video nasties. And again, that fear of, oh, a video nasty, that sounds so scary. And then you start to watch them and you go, oh, actually, a lot of these are just like nonsense. <laughs> and then yeah. things like Texas Chainsaw that we think are so scary or Halloween, you know, those movies are almost, well, Halloween, especially but like goreless. And, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the same. The ideas of what we think they're going to be from the description, so much of it is just in our perception and the way we experience the film. And I don't know if there's really a lot of other genres like that. I mean, yes. And I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time at like 36, and that movie still fucked me up. So like, It's that, so scary. That, it has that one a sticks. power that is unique and of its own. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and go for it. I was just a bit when te- when Leatherface walks out the door with the hammer for the first time. I, I think about it all the time. Well, I was gonna say that's always the interesting thing about you know you're talking about the early slashers and how you want to see all of them and like track the lineage and the chronology and how slashers evolved into something like Scream. And I think it's always the interesting thing to think about that the OGs, like you know, going back to Black Christmas, like the really like mm-hmm. the real first slasher, um, and then Halloween, and then talk about Texas Chainsaw. We, we've been so inundated with the gory slasher of, of late you know and like the, the remake uh craze in the 2000s like they all up the gore factor and throughout time it became this thing where like slashers dropped the tension level a little bit yeah. and they traded it for like the body count and the over, mm-hmm. over the top practical effects but yeah it is it, you know you go back and you watch black christmas halloween texas chainsaw all these old school slasher films that help build the genre and it feels like we almost learn the wrong lessons in a way yeah because as it keeps <laughs> going it's like oh well people just want to see death and gore and destruction and don't get me wrong i do watch my 80s slashers for that kind yeah. of nonsense and having fun with it like i hope i think there's subgenres it within literal a subgenre of slasher like you know where you can have both both sides if you want it but like i don't know i'll never uh kind of like give up the fact that like I think we did like kind of lose the plot a little bit about what means slasher mm-hmm. so good because to me there still is no better than like Black Christmas like that is yeah. just yeah. suspense tension everything taken to the billionth degree and that is what makes it so good and then you have like the remake and it's like you could it, it's just such a fun compare and contrast to say like yeah mm-hmm. this is the this is the OG 70s version and this is definitely the 2006 version and, like, yeah 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 
Yeah, and I I love like you know this especially like Denai. We talk about this. Where I'm always DMing you about like your remakes and your and your kind of great criticism you do about those. Like I love those zeros movies. I this movie is from the zeros that we're going to talk about. Like I love that wild and it's not a nostalgia thing like definitely for me the stuff that i thought was great that still sticks with nostalgia is like 80s to like scream i know at first i know what you did last summer those have that nostalgic kind of feeling the zero stuff i enjoy the aesthetic and like the kind of campiness that comes with so many of them but i totally agree like black christmas is nothing short of a masterpiece and it's also a blessing for people like me because it's it's so easy to point to when people go, oh, like horror is getting politicized. And you're like, this is literally a movie with an abortion plot. <laughs> and it's like such a key part of the movie and it's done so subtly. And it's not like trying to shove it down your throat. It's just a makes the experience of this film feel so more real, so much more realistic because those are real conflicts that people that age have, you know? And like the first Halloween movie is so scary. And it's all about that tension. And I would love, and also I love murder mysteries and stuff. And I feel like slashes really, they they tap into something from that, the, the fear of not knowing who to trust and, and the great question of who is doing this to you. And I think Scream did a really good job of leaning into that aspect, like the whodunit and kind of exploding that. But also I, I, I would love to see a, a generation of filmmakers come up who wanted to take it back to that tension and that fear and that that kind of horrible suspense that you almost don't want to know what's going to happen next that's that feeling I always remember of watching those films when I was a kid not the covering your eyes but that kind of like you don't want to breathe like it's it's so scary and I, I would love to it's been a long time since I saw a film like that nowadays it's my tolerance for gore has gone down I I, I used to go and see every you know torture porn like french new extremity movie but that my tolerance as i've gotten older has has gone down so that's the stuff mm -hmm. i can't watch anymore and again it, it that's the wrong lesson but i do also think that some of those movies are like absolute masterpieces so i'm glad that we went down the road where we got to super gory stuff but i'd love to see more storytelling in that kind of dark suspenseful vein of the original slashers I just, I just wish it wasn't a trade exactly like i wish we didn't trade one for the other i just yeah. wish they veered multiple off different paths. paths exactly because like terrifier 2 like that's the thing like the, it's the nostalgia cycle of terrifier 2 is so popular right now because we still want to go relive those 80s moments and stuff like that where it's like how far do we have to get to go reach back into like the 70s and like the early 80s versus like the late 80s of camp mm -hmm. uh, it's just an interesting conversation to have elevated horror matthew <laughs> I know I was like <laughs> I was gonna say when I was saying this I was gonna be like I hope nobody goes well actually those exist look I I'm I do not use the term but I have I am a fan of many new horror movies that have come out in the last few years that may or may not get called that but the slasher suspense is like this very specific kind of thing because right. it is still the simplicity of somebody is trying to terrorize you and kill you but you've got to have that like I guess it's I think about this a lot with movies in general but especially horror it's the the joys of having it's kind of similar to superhero comics actually the joys of like the confines that you have from a very specific mm -hmm. structure in old horror being uh you know the confines of a low budget or a short shooting time you have to just get to the point 
and make the story. And I think a lot of what we love from slasher movies actually just comes directly from that. The same rawness and kind of scariness of Texas Chainsaw Massacre definitely comes from that. And with comic books, some of the wildest, best stories come from the fact that somebody wrote a story in like two days that they thought nobody would ever read again because it was a disposable thing for kids that would probably get thrown away. You know, so I kind of love that, the the magic that comes out of those boundaries that get put on making art. But yeah, I was somebody, somebody listening to this, go and make a really cool, weird, dark slasher that's like, doesn't have any blood in it. A challenge. Yeah, go watch a bunch of Jalos and then uh, mm-hmm. bring back bring back that inter, that intermediary area where there, we were going from the murder mystery to the to the slasher. Well, let me ask uh, Rosie because you um, obviously this is what you do for a living now, but I'm I'm curious how you came to you know sounds cliche if I said find your voice, but how did you realize that that film criticism and writing about film in particular was something that you were interested in doing? Was that high school, post high school, like you know? a blog that you were maintaining in the early 2000s where did where did you kind of put the uh the rubber to the road there's two versions the one is the original uh hilarious story from when i was a kid i want to be a film critic more than anything i realized probably when i was about like 11 and i still hadn't been able to like find a camera in in a charity shop that the, the directing thing might be a bit of a reach so i decided i really wanted to be a film critic and i would write unsolicited film reviews and send them to Empire Magazine with the help of a mentor I had, not really realizing that like one unsolicited, two, 11, that would be child labor. Also three, I was like 11 and reviewing like True Romance and Texas Chainsaw Massacre because I'm sure I thought it made me look like really mature. So that was when I wanted to do it. Actually making it come true was because of this uh, incredible website called Women Write About Comics, where I actually began writing about comics with the name. Um, it's a community space. None of us are paid. The editors aren't paid. The writers aren't paid. And I'd I'd done writing before, like stories and poetry and stuff like that. But Women Write About Comics was where I definitely got to hone my voice, not just because there was a lot of freedom and I got to write about stuff that was niche but then as we so often find out the niche is actually really universal and loads of people are like oh I've thought that or I would like to do that and um and there were just brilliant editors there as well who who really helped me kind of hone what I was doing and luckily through that I actually got to like review movies from you know I didn't go there but I got to see screeners from South by Southwest and review all kinds of cool like art house movies and and sort of really start to realize oh, maybe I I could do this. And this is a transferable skill from one, always loving movies and doing other kinds of writing. And then I used those clips, uh, especially about comic books and pop culture. I did a really silly but fun series called Daddy Issues that was all about like the worst dads in comic books. And, and, and I used those and then would send them out when people would do call outs. And that's how I started writing at Nerdist and then through them, IGN, Polygon, and managed to transition into being a full-time freelancer. So it was definitely, I always find it funny if there's ever a day where I'm like struggling to finish a review or something. And I'm like, I don't feel like I, I will like force myself to think about me being like 11 with really shit handwriting, like writing a review to Empire Magazine and be like, look, this is something you really wanted to do, man. Like just 
finish the review and like make it good. <laughs> so you're telling me we were denied lights, camera, Rosie is what you're saying. <laughs> you know what? Maybe, maybe it will happen. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Could have, could have been you. Instead, it's Jackson. Sorry to hear. Imagine that. I, I, if I, I would do anything to go back in time and be the person who said, "Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I've got a bad case." of Doctor Strange. I say that we say that so much in our house, like so much. I would give, the worst thing is if it had been me, it would have been so much more pretentious. I would have been like 11 talking about like fucking Werner Herzog or something. It would have been absolutely awful. But you know what? Maybe, maybe time travel will happen and I can, I can make it. We should never be beholden to our opinions and tastes when we were 11 years old. Never, never, never ever, ever. Well, I want to ask then as a follow-up question to that, you know, obviously you've put a lot of work and time into getting to a place where you're able to support yourself as a full-time critic, but the finances of that and the imposter syndrome piece of that can be two very different things. So do you remember when you felt that you were like, what that could be a byline, it could just be, a, you know, a slew of reviews and articles you were writing? Was there, was there sort of a moment where you were like, oh, I'm telling people that I'm like a film critic and film journalist, and it doesn't feel like I'm talking out of the side of my mouth? You know, I, there's two different versions of it. Like I, I could, I will know because of when the movie came out, but the first review, I, I'm pretty sure that I'd reviewed movies at Nerdist um, quite frequently and I'd gotten to review some really cool stuff and I'd probably done a couple, some other places, but the first review I ever wrote for IGN just so happened to be, they, they, my editor at the time emailed me and was like, Hey, Netflix has put out this martial arts movie and we know that's something like you like to write about like do you want to review it and it was The Night Comes for Us by Timo Tejanto and it just absolutely blew me away it's still one of my all-time favorite movies and I get I wrote the review and I I felt really good about that review and I gave it a nine out of ten and I was not afraid to do that even though it was like the honestly in in hindsight it hadn't been the first review I ever wrote I might have given it ten out of ten but like I was like you know it's, it's I don't like to number a movie that's like the right. worst part of reviewing for me but but I remember when I wrote that and it got shared by IGN and that felt like a bit of a a watershed for me where I was like this is a site where not only like do I respect the people who are part of it and everything and and it has a really big following but also like this is a movie that I just feel so lucky to have been in this position to review and and there's probably a reason that they asked me you know aside from me having very like generally seen as like niche tastes but um that was definitely a first and then I feel like probably the beginning of last year that's when disney plus launched right that was a time when i was writing a lot of articles about very deep cut comic book stuff that was very specific to my interests that i'd known about for almost as long as i've been alive in regards to you know wonder uh, vision and stuff like that and that was a time when i started to see like people were like citing stuff that I was writing about and they were sort of taking a lot of leads from the 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 law that I was pulling from and I was getting to kind of speak to the people who are making the shows and 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 I was like oh okay this is this that was when I started to feel really comfortable being like 
I'm not just a critic, but I'm also like a comic book historian. Like this is, and and I'm a bit, I, I would I would like to think of myself as like an amateur film historian, but like that was another one of those moments. Those were the kind of two sides of it. Where I, and I still have imposter syndrome like every single day. <laughs> Anytime I file a piece um, and I'm constantly also like, oh, I need to look for more work even when I know that I'm actually doing okay. But those were kind of two moments where I was sort of like, oh, I think I'm, I think I'm doing something here. And the I, that IGM review was so, I was so lucky because I got to review, I've gotten to review so many movies for IGN. And that's definitely the space where I would say like I've gotten to really hone like a, a more expanded critical voice. Like I've written really long reviews there where I really get to kind of explore weird stuff that I wouldn't necessarily have expected to when I went in to see the movie that I was supposed to review. And Donato, I want to ask, you know, because you have a lot of those bylines on your resume as well. Um, I, you know, there are there are a couple of tiers, I feel like, when I talk about people that I know in the industry. Um, and some of them are like, if I can describe people and I can be like, oh, I know this person, they write for X and Y and Z. The stuff that always hits is IGN always hits, pop culture happy hour always hits. There's like a couple of different things that I'm like, if I say that I know somebody who does this, it really like, it opens doors that are normally not open to like family members and friends. They're like, oh, I listened to that episode or like, mm-hmm. oh, I read that kind of casually. So maybe kind of question for both of you, like, what is it like to be able to have um, some of those bylines where like random average people are, are actually like your parents and your parents' friends are actually impressed and not just in sort of like a good for you for doing the thing kind of way, but like actually like, oh shit, like I've heard of that. I know that I ingest that. What is that experience like? So I think one of the funny ones for me, I'll, I'll also use IGN because like same same place, you know, same shared byline in a way, um, but similar experience to you, Rosie, in, in the way that like, listen, a lot of my friends aren't reading film criticism, like my my, my mm-hmm, quote unquote mm-hmm. normie friends outside of our circles. Like they they when I say what film critics do you listen to, they just name some YouTubers and I'm like, right, OK, that that tracks. You just want to put it on <laughs> while you're working. But like, that's what they want. And like, that is the you know, yeah. that is exactly what the mainstream, uh, I guess, to say audience wants at that point. But IGN does a wonderful thing where they will sometimes for a big enough movie do a video along with it that is mm-hmm, used, like, mm-hmm. to your review to your script still so it's great so like one of those came out for like Maverick or uh, you know a, a movie this year or something that was huge and that was the recognition of like oh man like I listened to your review on you know IGN while it was playing in the background and I was like that was that was the cooler moment of breaking through to certain t- mm-hmm people that I know in my life that, that love me dearly, but like, listen, we're not going to read your shit. <laughs> we're not yeah. interested. We, we don't want to hear like the long spiel about what you think of this movie. I just want to know really quickly, nitty gritty. Do do I want to watch it? So like mm-hmm. that was a real breaking point, but also to use, um, I, I think horror film festivals in a way, because yeah. I, I've always gotten pretty good feedback in the sense that like filmmakers just, if I, re- I, I write a lot of festival stuff for slash film, um, and I, I did a bunch for We Got This Covered before I left that shithole. Um, but like, <laughs> the like you know, We Got This Covered was always funny because like I got way more attention there because apparently their SEO or their numbers are tremendous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like, yeah. you know, so like basically these filmmakers would get so excited that I wrote like a We Got This Covered f- review years ago. But then I do, started doing more slash film and I'm like, cool, I'm now I can I can leave like I, I'm no longer saddled to We Got This Covered. I can start to go to slash film and all, like all these other places, play Disgusting, Dread, Dentalist. Um, But like it tapered off a little bit. It's like, oh, cool. Thanks for the review on slash film. And like, you know, that's it. And we're not in this to get accolades from filmmakers. We're not here to like get that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that at all. But 
then I noticed starting to do some more coverage for IGN and starting to do these little, you know, festival reviews for IGN. And I'm getting DMs like, holy shit, you have no idea how much it means to me that mm-hmm. like my little nothing indie that's going to go straight to VOD has a review on IGN at a festival. And like that, those are the things like that's that's why we do it. Like we do it to yeah. not not to get the recognition. To like let people know about right. cool stuff. That's like and like the point, do it right? for the filmmakers too. Is it worth too. your while? Yeah, exactly. Like especially if we can highlight like an indie film or a film somebody hasn't seen. Like I think a lot of I think like genre movies, specifically horror, like as martial arts, those kind of things. You know, I know it doesn't feel like it in a world where the horror is like the only thing that brings a box office other than like superheroes right now, but those have always been underseen genres historically or kind of genres that have been pushed to the side, even if they're popular in the mainstream for the moment. So I think if we're drawn to writing about those things, it is for that reason. And it's really great when like, I remember I got to review like Lucky for um, Nerdist and I got to review another film um, from that like same director that had come out that year that I like loved even more. And it had just, to have them up there on Nerdist, so many people watched them and people were replying to it. And it just makes me feel good. It's the same thing that I love to do that with comics, especially like indie comics and stuff. So I think that's a really lovely version of kind of thinking about it. Hilariously, Slash Film was actually one of those places where like when I I, I loved writing for the Slash Film, I used to write there so much. And um, that was one of those places where people would be like, oh, I love Slash Film. And that would be like one of the unexpected ones. The one I get at the moment of like the podcast I do with um, Jason, my co-host, is at Crooked Media. And now that's the one where like most of my friends, like even my wide friendship group love the same kind of stuff we like. But Crooked Media is the one where like my niece, when she found out was like, oh my God, I love Crooked Media. Like I listen to everything. And I'm like, okay, well, this one's about like people wearing tights and capes, but sure, like maybe you will also love it. So that's definitely been a new frontier of, of breaking out of the kind of circles of people that I haven't already hit with the with the rest of the writing. Yeah, and I think I, I can speak for all of us. And uh, I, I still write for Slash Room. I love them. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, yeah. it's, yeah. I will oh, write no, no, for no, them no. until I die. No, no, no. <laughs> I didn't. No, no, no. I, I thought it's only good stuff. And now, yeah. I mean, the team there now is better than ever. Like, it's Absolutely. such a cool group of people. But yeah, it's definitely funny, especially because I didn't really realize how much of a footprint iGen has. So you can really tell the difference between like, writing something on there and the reach that it has and some of the like smaller sites where you're really doing it for like the love and the crew of the people that that you work with. Yeah. You know, I feel that the conversation we just had feels like a natural jumping off point because, Hey, sometimes on the front end, you'll support some little film that doesn't get a lot of love and attention. <laughs> and sometimes on the back end, you'll come on a show like certified forgotten and talk about a movie like Hellraiser Hellworld and try uh, and make a case uh... for it years and years after it was released. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to put the thrill of discovery back into the Hellraiser franchise. We're right back.
Usually we'd have a more planned out bumper than we do today, but today you got me, Matt Donato, one half of your certified forgotten co-hosts. I just want to say thank you to everyone who listens, everyone who supports, everyone who hits the Patreon, whatever you do, however you share this, uh, we couldn't do this without you. So a sincere pre-holiday thank you to everyone, and I'm sure we'll be more sentimental about the Christmas time spirit come next episode. All right, let's get back to it. Okay, welcome back. So today we're going to be talking about Hellraiser Hellworld, aka the one with Henry Cavill. And uh, I'm going to read just a quick blurb here because if you have not seen this movie, and we'll talk about my relationship to the Hellraiser franchise in a minute, this is going to come a little bit out of left field. So the eighth, and I put an exclamation point on my screen, but you can't see it. The eighth film in the Hellraiser franchise, Hellraiser Hellworld offers a metatextual take on the complicated mythology of Clive Barker's movies. When a group of friends addicted to the official Hellraiser RPG, which is already a wild thing to say, are invited to an exclusive players-only party, a night of debauchery seems like the perfect excuse to put aside thoughts of their late friend. But when the group runs afoul of both Pinhead and the mysterious host, they will soon learn the true meaning of the phrase, Hellsight. That is the synopsis for Hellraiser Hellworld in a nutshell. I said when we were talking prior to the show, Rosie, that I was going to make you do your best to explain the complicated mythology of the Hellraiser movies. So in a hundred words or less, <laughs> the other seven films, what, what what's going on? There is a box called the Lament Configuration. It's a magical puzzle box that can be used to open a pathway to hell um and it is like a sexy sadomasochistic hell it was invented by a toy maker called le marchard who was hired by a french aristocrat who was really into masochism and in the fourth movie hellraiser bloodline is killed by his apprentice played by adam scott (laughs) that's my favorite hellraiser movie um and basically the the Cenobites, they appear when you call the puzzle box and they want to take your soul to hell and like turn you into a sexy BDSM monster. And yeah, it, it came from the incredible book, uh, Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker uh, or the priest, the hell priest, depending on which version you read. And that is like this really incredible, deep esoteric horror, as is all of Barker's work. But as we go forward, the puzzle box in the later stages just becomes a way to introduce cool monsters into any movie. Okay, that's a lot of Hellraiser information. And so the next natural question coming off of that is all of that seven movies worth of mythology about boxes and French folk and, you know, hell dimensions and Cenobites. What's the deal with Hellraiser Hellworld? Because it is not like any of the things, not really like any of the things that you've described. It's it's not, and it's it's really interesting for a very late stage Hellraiser movie because post Hellraiser 4 Bloodline, which I do love, and again, stars Adam Scott in a powdered wig. It's so good. And it's also like, also set in the future in space and in old timey France. So it's very magical and strange. But after that, the Hellraiser movies stick to a pretty straight 
structure going forward, which is it's basically like a detective who is solving a series of murders or somebody who is entangled in a series of murders. It's quite procedural. So this one is very out of the blue. Rewatching it for this movie, this movie came out in 2005. So rewatching it for this podcast, I did have, it's a little bit late stage for most of the internet scare movies that we get, but I, I did realize that it's also a sore knockoff. I, I I had a I had a big realization about that when I was there's mm. lots of traps and Saw had come out the year before and become this like you know justifiably this just massive success so I also think that is it production wise it had to be filmed in Romania back to back with Hellraiser Deda as part of the production deal which is why like Kari Payton from Teen Titans Go and The Walking Dead is in it because he'd been in Russia filming Dracula 2 Ascension, I mean, Romania filming Dracula 2 Ascension. Lance Henriksen's only in it because he'd been in Romania. Thank you for that coincidence because Lance Henriksen is in this movie and he's absolutely just the perfect weird choice. And this is also, so not only is this like a weird, the internet is dangerous movie, but it's also another favorite subgenre of mine in horror, which is it's a rave movie. There's horror, it's going down at a rave. And this movie also has Henry Carville. So if you didn't, if you needed another reason to watch it, he's like a jerky jock teenager who wears a leather jacket and comes to a, you know, a gory end. Well, I, I was actually going to say, I'm glad you brought up the saw aspect first, uh, because watching it now, I had not seen Hellworld uh, prior to this. I think Hellraiser is one of those franchises I really just never got into. So I didn't do my deep dive yet. Mm. But so first time for Hellworld for me, and I was expecting something more akin to Stay Alive, uh, Fear.com, the the internet yeah. panic, as you were saying before. But watching it, I'm like, oh, no, this is Saw. Like, literally, like, that was my first thought as they're going through the movie. Yeah, it's Saw, and especially the first kill literally is two saws attached to a trap. So I feel like they wanted you mm -hmm. to be like, this is to do with Saw. And also as well, it has, the, the Cenobites are very interesting in horror canon because they are not, they're quite neutral. They're not really villainous because if you open the box, you've done a deal with them and they often don't commit to any kind of moral argument with whether somebody is good or bad that most people who open the box are greedy or searching for something, but they can occasionally be tricked or made deals with so that they do things to help good people. But this is very interesting because this is absolutely like Saw about an old sad man on a moral crusade or like a perceived moral crusade so it has that aspect too well and speaking to the nature you said before of like the cenobites being these interesting quote-unquote villains but also not villains that you can kind of plug and play into any scenario like Hellworld wasn't even a hellraiser movie at first like it was based on a short yeah. story uh dark can't breathe by joel soyson and it was going to be its own movie and so you just yeah that's basically also you're speaking to basically many hellraiser sequels yes yeah. these are the, there was a, a, a for a very long time somebody knew that hellraiser was a or could be a profitable brand so most of the movies that you're seeing post 4 which was the last one that went to the cinema and even that had aspects of other films that were supposed to be other films in it um they are a lot of times their their screenplays with the with the serial number scraped off, you know that that are then transplanted into that, which I think a lot of times can actually be very interesting. And this is definitely even though the end kind of 
we talked about this before, but like the end of the movie sort of like wants you to be like, oh, the pinhead is really here. And this is Doug Bradley's last pinhead role. So good. I'm glad they put him in it. But like, this is also kind of that late stage franchise movie where they go, oh, actually the Cenobites aren't even a thing. Like we're gonna we're gonna surprise you. You think this movie is one thing, but really it's it's Saw. <laughs> well, it's it's the Friday the Thirteenth New Beginning thing for me. Where exactly. oh, guess what? Like it's not and really Jason under there. Halloween like, three, right. you know, like it's it's uh, yeah, Halloween ends sort of. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's uh, I I am a, I am a respecter of the the wanting to do something new, especially because it usually just ends up being really weird. But yeah, this definitely fits into those weird choices of like, well, you know, slasher movies are, have been popular uh, 10 years ago, but like still five years ago, like, and now Saw. So how can we make something that fits into that world with the lore of Hellraiser included with the idea of the official Hellraiser game? I I am so deeply invested in discovering what that means for like the canon of Hellraiser. Like mm-hmm. it's they the description that you read is is very generous. I feel like this movie was not necessarily written as like a meta text <laughs> on on the nature of Hellraiser as much as I love it. But I do think that that is a very fun idea. I mean, a character in this movie wears a t-shirt with Pinhead's face on its back mm-hmm. as they play a game trying to open the Lament configuration, which by the way, just don't do it. They sell those things now. You can buy them on like Walmart, a fake one. And I still won't buy it and have it in my house because I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna tempt fate. I'm not gonna do it. Don't, don't play the internet game of the Lament configuration. It's gonna end badly for you. Well, it's interesting, Rosie, that you talk about that because that's, you know, I have watched exactly three Hellraiser movies now. I've watched 1978, 2022, and Hellraiser 8, which is like the most chaotic <laughs> evil. It's extremely chaotic, and I yeah, love it's, it. It's wild. And I love the Hellraiser films. I've just like, everybody has talked so much shit about all of the sequels with the possible exception of two, that it was just something that I was sort of like, I don't know if I want to go down this path. And I read like, because I have a, a Libby account, I downloaded some of the like Hellraiser comic books and the mythology. And yeah, Hellraiser yeah. Just like, like Hellraiser Pinhead becomes human and is like, you know, well, it's, it's Hellraiser it's three. Actually, something I didn't get to mention in my short lore is that Hellraiser three reveals that Pinhead was like a World War One soldier. It's it's very uh, esoteric. Also, Hellraiser three set in a club, and instead of a lament configuration, it's a giant like sexy statue of like dead bodies in a kind of cube. Very odd. Very yeah, odd. Yeah, but like but in the comics, great. in the comics, like Pinhead has become human again. And like this character's like, no, you have to become a Cenobite. And he's like, why the fuck would I do that? And so like- <laughs> it Sounds just, terrible. There's all this weird stuff going on. But I did, I you know, in, in the post-Scream era, and this is influenced by Saw, I think it's also pretty influenced by a million Scream sequels as well. Oh yeah. Where like we're, you know, we're commenting characters that are sort of self-referential and aware, you know, Lance Hendrickson pops out of the backseat and says, oh, it's like a bad horror movie. We're used to that and that's fine and it's a little played out, but there are like bits and pieces of this movie that I think endure because of its understanding nature of fandom. Where like yes. when when Lance Henriksen calls the main character and is basically like, oh, you're going to hell. And she's like, you don't fucking understand the mythology. Like I have to open the lament box and if I don't open the lament. And I was like that part, that piece of this right? 
feels incredibly fresh to even today yeah. because when confronted with eternal damnation, there are large sections of fandom that would be like, actually, that's not really actually. Yeah, no, I think that's such a great point. And something, the reason there's a, the, the holistic kind of whole of this movie I love because it's like there's so many different elements, but I actually think like some of the best qualities and probably the reason that the blurb reads like that it is those moments where intentionally, unintentionally, they kind of capture this reality of this fandom and this kind of obsession, but also the silliness of it. And mm -hmm. and kind of, I love the idea that any of these people would kind of just turn up to a random rave house with like a printed out paper invite and then stay after someone you know stabbed at least them all at least once with like a tiny nail like there's just there's so many things about it that don't make any sense but the movie is so vibey with like the weird pumping like not committed to truly being industrial music soundtrack but it's kind of like heavy heavy dance music and yeah it's it's so much fun and also I was something I realized I I own this movie on blu-ray it was not hard I I own all of the Hellraiser movies, apart from the last two, uh, not including the 2022 one. I, I would own that if Hulu put it out. I thought it was great. Um, but when I was watching it, I realized this movie as well, in director DVD fashion, well, when they're good, it gets straight to it. Like, it's like, there's a funeral. Now they're on a computer. Oh, they're in the rave house where they're all going to die. It's like, and then really it's in the house where they, you know, there are those, there's lots of kind of scenes where you're like, oh, somebody, you know, there might be someone who could argue you could have cut this scene of her running around on her mobile phone. You know, they give them all mobile phones as like a, a major narrative device that's kind of revealed at the end as to why. And it's just, there's so much hilarious convoluted exposition and plot that they have to lay out. But for me, it just, it, it really works, especially as this kind of funny placeholder for that time and the way that people perceive it and also again weirdly prescient in the nature of like what people then imagined online gaming would be to how mm -hmm. prevalent it actually is now and how many people you know play it and even like the kind of this the the overarching subplot which this is not some like incredibly deep horror about trauma and loss or anything but it has a plot about a guy who got so into online gaming that he like died or killed himself or something like there's something to it where the fear-mongering aspect and the way that they kind of just brush over it actually makes it seem quite subtle and then obviously at the end it's like oh no he really did open a door to hell and he's probably a cenobite now right but you know that's just how it goes sometimes <laughs> but there's another there's that great that you know i i just i love and, and i think you're right it's it could be intentional it could be happy accidents right but like when the friend is playing the game and trying to open, you know, the lament configuration, the guy's like, you're not finessing it enough here. Just let me do it. And it's just <laughs> like, like, think about that scene for a second. Think about gamer culture. Think about post gamer gate. The guy that's basically like, oh, you're not damning yourself with enough finesse. You're like, your mouse yeah. sensitivity isn't up high enough. So let me just fucking do it for you. I was like, this is, this is good. Actually, yeah. I am into this. And then the best bit is there's the immediate payoff where like he can't go because yeah. like he, he didn't get the invite, you know? Well, and it's also it's also the gamer bro saying it to a woman gamer and like that just the, the, yeah. just layers and layers of context there. And like yep. I do. So some of the moments that that don't land for me as well in the beginning are those meta mm -hmm. hits where 
the two douchey dude bros who walk into the rave party and there's just a topless girl walking down the stairs and like the camera well like the camera lingers on her and the guy's like gratuitous boob shot and then henry calville's like necessary boob shot but like it's a commentary (laughs) on horror it's a commentary on that stuff but then you get to the ending and it's revealed that they're just seeing what they want to see and like that is so like that takes away the trying too hard meta-ness of like haha we're commenting that like tits are always out in horror movies but instead it becomes no that's exactly what those guys wanted to see in that moment and i was like yeah you've saved some of these less successful gags i'll say with this insane fucking bonkers ending that i'm like (laughs) it was all a dream (laughs) okay yeah i was gonna say like how does that because i'm like so i've seen this movie so many times at this point like i how does how does it feel when you watch that at the end and then it's like, oh, by the way, they were all actually just drugged and Lars Henriksen had them in buried alive in coffins and was using mobile phones to te- like trick them and manipulate their trip so that they would think they were in a rave, rave being murdered by Cenobites. I mean, that is an absolutely unhinged <laughs> revenge plot that I feel like probably would not have uh, felt so realistic to the people in, inside the the coffins. Well, and I was also going to say the the concept of the idea that you have five friends going to this like Leviathan house or whatever to to go to this hell world rave that has been created. Like they walk into the building and they see people in a rave, but then they walk into Lance Hendrickson who's playing a character. Like, do, do you want to just spoil that too while we're at it? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean. Let's do it, baby. So, like, he's playing the dead kid's dad getting revenge on all of them. So, what gets me, though, is they have walked into the lobbyway, or let's say the foyer of the Leviathan house before the rave. You clearly see there's a rave happening. People are all around. Then they go into the the office, and that is where three of them get drugged, but two do not. So, how did Lance Hendrickson have three of these drug people go down and he could bury them while two of them are still up. Like, like I, none of that makes sense. Absolutely none of it. Many, many questions abound about his plan. It's almost like, I, I feel like a lot of the questions you have while you're watching the movie are like, wow, this guy has a lot of money. Like he's throwing a rave for a bunch of kids. Like there's a lot of logic questions that you're asking about the setup, but not as many as when the ending is real, but I, again, I love a like weird late stage twist though. Every time I watch it, I'm just like my, the funniest suspension of disbelief I have is like, I just really don't think that they would believe they were in that rave, no matter how many drugs they were on. That's like me every time. I'm like, I just, I just don't believe it would be that tangible. It's like, of course not. It's made up, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely bonkers. It's also funny, this idea of like the Leviathan house that they kind of invoke in this, because actually one of the coolest bits about Hellraiser lore that they get into in Bloodline and kind of like touch on it here and there, but is is quite a prime part of the, the, the 2022 version, which is what I love that just, to me, the biggest compliment I say about that movie is just felt like a great 11th Hellraiser movie. It didn't feel like they were trying to like make it anything like they weren't trying to reboot it you know it's very requally even though it doesn't necessarily like bring people back but the architecture the idea that the people have created architecture that can open the gates to hell and that can be similar is similar to like the the puzzle box because it's the architect is the person who is the ancestor 
or, or the descendant of the person who created the box. So this idea of the house having power and stuff is really interesting. But in this, they just call it a name and then they're like, eh, it's just a house. Yeah, it's a house. There's there's no actual like architecture or anything to do with like the kind of wider lore of Hellraiser, which makes sense with the twist. But then the second twist before the five other like, you know, jump scare twists is that actually Pinhead is real in this world. And Pinhead is going to come and be like, what are you doing, my guy? Why did you pretend to invoke me to kill these children? Like, what what the fuck? Also, he just got away. Like, he just, oh, yeah. he just straight left. He was just like, peace. Yeah, I like that part. But yeah. I think, you know, with the, like, so first of all, I, I pour one out for movies that were, th- that there was a period where a film could basically be like, fuck you, continuity. And like, not like a major <laughs> franchise film, right? Something these days you could not make a movie like this because it would Mm-mm. have to be so like, you know, we did it for the fans. It would just be the rock on Twitter over and over yeah. again. They're like fans. And that would there be, would be like 5,000 articles. Like here's all the plot holes in Hellraiser exactly hell world. And I miss that. I miss movies that were basically oh, like, too. yeah, we're going to retcon all of this because it, it ends up being this thing. But I will say that the thing that like when they were doing the reveal, because you asked Rosie kind of like the experience we had when they were doing the reveal, I was like, this makes sense only within the context of nothing else could make more sense. So it has to be this. <laughs> but then there's that little monologue that Lance Henriksen gets where he's like, and I watched you. There were tears. There were shouts of joy. There were orgasms. And I was like, okay, I got to hear this little monologue that he did about like hearing people orgasm in coffins on the other side of a Nokia phone. Like, this movie can do no wrong. This is right? those, are the, those are the moments where you're just like, Hellraiser, Hell World. And also it has this like incredible, terrible like cover that completely missells the movie where it's like Pinhead's face covered in like green binary mm-hmm. code, which I adore. But, you know, I, I would feel like some people might mis- think misrepresents the movie, but there's so many great little moments like that, like, that really, really bleakly dark Lance Henriksen monologue about killing these teenagers that just, oh, they, they bring me so much joy. It's such a, like, weird forgotten gem. And I feel like it has a lot of fun in the kind of, like, shitposty, like, meme world that we live in. I just feel yeah. like there's an audience of people of all different ages who could watch this and not feel like, oh, this sucks. Like that was a waste of my time, but watch it and be like, oh, there were really like joyous, weird, campy, strange things that were done in this movie, which was, as so many great later stage sequels are, made solely to keep a a trademark, you know? Well, like, I think one of the fun... One of the funny things, too, about like the soundtrack, which is this like industrial new metal soundtrack. But then there are these prolonged kind of like Amelia walked out at one point. And she's like, what in the fucking CW world is this shit? Like, it's just one of those like <laughs> it could have been like the OC soundtrack, yeah. basically. And mm-hmm. you're going like, again, how does that fit in a Hellraiser movie? Like everything yeah. about it feels so influenced by the times the early 2000s mm-hmm. but also like outdated in a way that you're like it's 2005 oh, yeah. and it's also like going away a little bit like it's gr- it's holding on a little bit too much to the 90s and it's like also trying to reach ahead yeah. in the 2000s and you don't really like it like the arms are so outstretched they're just pulling and you have no idea what's like what's gonna happen <laughs> at the end but yeah no that was uh the, the experience of just like watching it and having everything wash over you and realizing that it's not a pinhead Cenobite movie was like the biggest thing to me because 
again, the, the cover sells it as some Matrix fucking movie. Like, you know, you, you mm-hmm. log into some again, virtual also reality world. Again, also an outdated, an outdated reference, oh, yeah. again, <laughs> even for the time. This but, is a movie, to your point, Donato, that's being drawn and quartered by decades of movies. Yeah, it is yeah. being torn apart. But I to get to that. Monagle's uh, point that I think he wants to get to, uh, Henry Cavill fucking is hilarious. Yes, he is. He is so funny. Like, it's the weirdest, like, creepiest, rudest, like, most over-the-top performance. And I wonder, I do wonder, I think about him and Adam Scott a lot, and I wonder if they sort of wish they could, you know, erase these movies so they didn't have to see themselves. But this one, Carver should be proud. Same with Adam Scott. He plays this, like, really lascivious, like, sexy, terrifying, powdered wig, like, serial killer. Like, it's absolutely unhinged. But Carvel's so good in this movie in his horrible leather jacket with his, like, kind of, like, over-gelled curls just, like, hitting on everyone. And, yeah, he's... I especially like the scene before he dies when he's kind of, like, going around trying to prove to himself that he's not scared, pointing out all the fake, you know, oh, that... This is just a prop. Like, just having this, like, long, weird monologue about how everything in the room is made of, sin- like, silicon. And it's not real until he sees his dead friend, obviously, and then gets, like, killed on the classic horror style of, like, a, a, a swinging butcher's hook. Yep. And it's, I did want to talk, thank you, Donato, because I did want to talk about Henry Cavill, because we, we like Henry Cavill in this household, always have been and always will. Uh, I don't think he would look back on this because he is a huge computer nerd, famously built his own computer that during COVID. Is true. So I think this is probably this probably gets much closer to the real version of him than a lot of the things that he sees on screen. But it's funny. There, you know, there are actors that show up in horror films. Uh, Adam Scott, obviously, Paul Rudd, like people that show up in like sequels to horror films, and you're like, okay, you're talented and I see it. But it's a really hard thing to be able to articulate um when somebody's doing something early in their career. Cause you know, I wouldn't look at this and say, Oh, like Henry Cavill, you could tell he was a star. That's not the read that I get from him in this movie. But you can tell when somebody is, I don't even want to say downshifting, but Henry Cavill is like wrapping back around on this movie and like over the top in a way that he, like everybody else is like really trying to put in the most serious work of their career. Oh yeah. Cavill's like, fuck yeah. (laughs) And it's like doing this whole other thing. And it's just like, when you can see an actor I don't want to say coasting because he's not coasting, but when you can see an actor playing with a performance, like basically yes. like doing fun shit with a movie because he knows he could play it straight, but he wants to do something else anyways. Yeah. That's super interesting. And we don't normally in any kind of level of horror see it with somebody with no. his, that's as much of a star as Henry Exactly. Cameron's. Because I think as well, a lot of the reason that those people like later become stars is because they did play it straight or they played it safe or they played it the way it was supposed to be played. I mean, this movie features Henry Carvel sitting in a chair getting a fake blowjob from somebody in a mask and they position the mask up so it looks like the mask is just going up and down on his lap while he's just like looking bored on his Nokia phone. You know, like there's there's so many moments in this that he just totally sells. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun and it's also cool because a lot of movies, Hellraiser franchise, I feel like with him and them with like Scott, they both of them are like, really major parts of these movies and a lot of those horror cameos we get from people who are in this stuff who became big stars they're not always that you know they're they're killed quite early on or they're lesser roles or they're not as weird roles you know johnny depp is in a nightmare uh, nightmare for christmas (laughs) nightmare on our street you know but like he's just the teenage kid which is what he is like you said henry carvel in this he is like 
he's hamming it up. He knew what the movie was, even if nobody else, Lars, Lars obviously did. He always knows. But like, if all the other kids didn't know and they thought it was just kind of a standard slasher, Henry, Henry knew. And he had a lot of fun with it. Well, it's, it's he the does little this thing. Sorry, I want to, I want to, I want to real quick. I want to comment on, he does this reaction shot to his own joke when he's getting the blowjob where he's like talking to his friend. He's like, you shouldn't have blown me off. And then like, he looks down and he's like, yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> like you were just operating on such a different level than everybody else in this movie. That was not in the script. Like, you know watch. that the reaction was not in the script. Yeah. Sorry, Dino, go ahead, please. I, I was actually gonna bring up the moment right after that, where after he has gotten the blowjob and the girl comes back and she's like, yeah, it's your turn. Like you owe me one. The face he makes at the thought of giving Conyolingus <laughs> is like <laughs> DJ Khaled level approved. It is so fucking yeah. funny how mad he is at it. And like, but that that's a thing that to go back to what Monica was saying, it's him overselling every little thing to the like billionth yeah. degree. He's not, he is not just phoning this in. Like he's taking every line of dialogue and he's like, all right, I'm going to be the douchey misogynistic dude, bro. I can do this. And like, he just yeah, goes so like, fucking full force. Up to 11 it. every time. And it's very, it's nice because like, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, in, in these movies, like direct-to-DVD slashes and stuff or, or made-for-TV movies, you know, you don't really root for any of the characters because you don't get a lot of time with them and you don't know them. But the other, what he went for is he's like, I'm going to root, I'm going to be the character that people root to get killed. Like people are going to be happy when he gets killed. And and he does a really good job of that. And every horror movie needs that. Yeah. Well, so this is the part on the podcast where we would say, how does this film find its audience? That is a question that I don't know is as applicable because, because this is a, a Hellraiser sequel. Mm -hmm. There will always be people that will seek it out because they're completionists because it's an early Henry Cavill role stars. There will always be things where people like go back and be like, Oh, you know, I want to see the first movie that he made. So there is an audience for this film already baked into it. I think my question, uh, Rosie, that I'd like to hear your answer on first is how does this movie become more than just the seventh sequel, the eighth sequel, in the Hellraiser series. How does it, some for some of the stuff we talked about, about like self-referential humor and its understanding of near culture, like how does this become something that has a little bit more legs than 9-10 or 6-7 or, or the other ones that are there as well? I think like the, the way that it could probably change the perception of that. Because I think the, the reason that it, kind of is above those is like all the things we pointed out that we love that make it seem kind of weird or that we enjoy i feel like though it has an audience now like you said and we'll always have an audience i feel like it could become more of like a cult hit like something that people watch or screen this is a movie like i would love to see at the cinema and i know that there's lots of places that do screenings with dvds when they get and blu-rays when they get their release you know that's something it hellraiser is weird in that way because nobody is doing no movie theater is doing like a 10 movie Hellraiser right. marathon. They're just not. They'll do a, you know, you're, they're doing like a 25 movie MCU movie. They're doing every Friday the 13th. Like I have, there's a local cinema in the OC that does that like annually, but that's not happening with Hellraiser. So I think Hellworld could find a place as like a, a midnight movie or like um, even kind of a, a Cats-esque like or room-esque you know you have people mm. like quoting but the reality is uh i think that because of the culture that we live in now and the way that information is shared i'm surprised that this movie is not already like very 
viral on TikTok because it has Henry Cavill in getting a blowjob while on a Nokia phone. You know what I mean? I feel like the way that, even though I enjoyed the whole movie, I feel like there are many small moments that could be enjoyed by a much wider audience than maybe the whole movie could. And we live in a world right now where that is a way that a lot of people enjoy taking in information. So there's a space, I think, where there's a version of the timeline where this movie gets rediscovered because of the moments that we all enjoy, the weird moments, the camp moments, the actually clever moments, the the performance. I think those things could be highlighted in a really interesting way with the way culture is now. Though I have to say, I haven't necessarily seen the same kind of viral nature of like superhero movies or classic film. I haven't seen horror kind of find that space in those places yet in like TikTok and stuff, but you never know. The Henry Carvel, like you said, that's the, that's the big draw. I was always shocked when I was on Twitter. If I ever brought up this movie and posted a picture of him or Adam Scott, people would just be like, oh my God, I never knew that. And I'm just like, I thought everybody knew this now. I feel like probably people know about the Carvel one now because he is like one of the biggest stars in the world, you know, but I think, I think there's a place for that. I, so I would kind of argue that, uh, I mean, coming from my perception, the, Hellraiser sequels, it's like, okay, how do, how do you get Hellworld out to the world? How, how do you get the stigma mm-hmm. of it being a late stage Hellraiser sequel washed away so that people will give it a chance? Because I think that's the big thing. The big thing is yeah, no one cares what the Hell like the middle Hellraiser and later Hellraiser sequels are because they've heard over and over again, well, just watch the first two. Like, I, you yeah. know, I, I couldn't even name the other sequels and I consider myself a pretty... Yeah decent horror fan but like i can name all the ones i've seen um i know like again the, the titles of other ones that people have said to me offhanded but like off the top of my head I, i've just been told don't watch the regular the other hellraiser movies because you don't have to so i think you have to battle that and mm-hmm. also think about the henry cavill fans and the dc fans and like everyone who knows him now is mm. superman do you think they really want to go and watch a eighth installment of the Hellraiser franchise to see like Henry Cavill? I, I just don't see the crossover there, I guess to say. Yeah. So like you're kind of like fighting an uphill battle on getting people to watch something like Hellworld. But I think the way to do it is the way that, you know, I think Rosie talked about prior and saying it's so missold. It's so not the movie that people think it is just by looking at the poster alone. You have to go in and Mm-hmm. really sell people the weirdo shit the bonker shit yeah i the, the the tiktok example you just gave like correct exactly pick out the little scenes you know that'll draw people and get them into the rest of the movie because there's no way of getting people in based on the tagline or based on the usual ways that you would get yeah. people to watch a movie photoshop the poster without the word hellraiser so it just says hell world <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if this is for the Man of Steel crowd, but it's definitely for the Man from Uncle crowd. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. There we go. Right, I would I also say, like, uh, maybe, 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 like, people who like The Witcher, that show's very serious, but it is, like, genre-y. But no, yeah. I, think, I think you're right. Like, I do think it's very hard to sell people on franchise later stage franchise horror especially in a franchise like hellraiser where everyone's like they're bad or they're weird or they don't make sense or people know that they were just a lot of them were just trademark grabs but like we live in a world now where people will watch like 25 movies that are all interconnected so i'm just like if you can take that time and i say this as someone who spends most of my career and life writing about superhero things and comic book based things you can you can do it for a horror franchise look 
is it going to be Hellraiser? Probably not. Though I would say, I will argue, I think the first five are worth watching. Like, if you want to dive in, I think, I love four. That's my favorite. I really enjoy three. That was one of my favorites. And I know a lot of horror directors really have a lot of love for it because it's weird as fuck. One and two are legitimately like masterpieces in the genre. People love them. And this one, as we said, is like so good. After that, I think it's up to your proclivities. Uh, they're weird enough that I like them and I love I love B, C, D movies, you know? Um, but I would say, I, I think the first five are, I think they they could do with a reconsideration, especially in an era where I think like, you know, the Friday the 13th movies, again, I love any franchise that just keeps making sequels. I love those movies. But those, those are movies where people have every single one on Blu-ray in expensive box sets. Not saying they should do that, Valrisa. Though if they want to do it for me, I'll be fine with it. But like, people have the attention span. It's just like you said. How do you wash away like that stigma and get people to kind of give these things a chance so that maybe they can uncover the, you know, unlock the lament configuration and discover like the sites that Hellraiser has to show them. I was just, while you guys are doing that, I'm Googling to see if anybody has released the DVDs as a puzzle box. Yes, and they have. Okay, great. I was going to say, that's a missed opportunity. Congrats to those people. Well done. I have a Blu-ray of the, I have a Blu-ray of the four that probably like the most hated, which is like Bloodline, uh, Deader, the one, sorry to that one that I'm not remembering that's definitely about like a detective and then, and then this one. So like the, the four to four to eight which is uh yeah and then because everyone because they actually usually put one to three on on box sets and and release them but yes five is is really great and if you enjoyed this uh chat you should also watch four because i i want more people to watch it it's so weird sadly i think it has too many reviews because it went to the cinema but uh maybe one day we'll find a way to just sneakily cheek it in well, there you go. If you are not already a fan of Hellraisers 1 through 5, or, I mean, all of them, if you'd like, um, this is your argument to at least check out the eighth film because it's doing some really fun stuff. Rosie, I want to say thank you for coming on the show. We've wanted you to come on the show forever. I opened with that, but it's been really great to have you on here. If folks want to see your other writing or start badgering your co-host at Crooked Media about doing an episode just on Hellraiser 4, what are the best places to, to get a hold of you or connect with you online? Um, I you can read all of my writing. I have a website, rosynight.com. It links to a portfolio where you can see articles from IGN, Polygon, Nerdist, Den of Geek, Slash Film, DC Comics, uh, which is now just goes by dc.com. Uh, I am I only have two forms of social media that I use, which are Instagram and Letterboxd, where I have this year been keeping up with every single movie that I watch, including like Hallmark movies, made-for-TV movies, every bad horror movie I watch. So it's it's an eclectic selection. And both of those are Rosie Marks, which if I decide to commit to Hive will also be my name on there. Nice. Donato, we are in a watershed moment for social media platforms. Where what's your mastodon? What's your hive? Oh, where's your uh, where's your co-host? I, I am I can confirm the only Twitter alternative I am looking at is Hive. So I can now add that to the label I've always thrown out, but you can find me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, and Hive now, where you'll see my writing of so many topics that you already know. You know I write for IGN, Bloody Disgusting, Fangoria Slash Film Down, the fucking list. So 
You can also find everything on my authory page, which we, I, I just need to pimp more because it is a handy dandy little site that puts everything in one place. It's really good. It's really good. It's fantastic. Donato, did you recently write an article for Authory about your use of the platform? I got interviewed by Authory as a case study. That's what Whoa. I thought. Yeah. That's really yep. cool. I use, yep. that's what my portfolio is. I use Authory. It changed my life. And and if a website gets taken down, like, and doesn't get your stuff archived, Authory has already archived it for you. It's, it's like a, yeah, it's unbelievable. I wrote some really good pieces for a site called Hawkery Car, and that exa- that happened. So like, it picked them up. The site went away, and I'm like, cool. I still have some of, like my like favorite pieces I wrote like two years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Author, if you'd like to sponsor the podcast, yeah. we are, we are um, open to those kind of opportunities. <laughs> as for myself, you can find me at Matt Monagle or at Monagle um, in a few different places as well. I'll let you figure out where and which. Uh, please do check out our website, certifiedforgotten.com. We've got some really good articles that have gone up over the last couple of days. Um, there's a piece on the Mothman prophecies, which makes me super happy. Speaking, speaking of early aughts horror. And if you want more Hellraiser sequel content, we have an incredibly kick-ass piece about Julia, uh, the main character from the second Hellraiser film on the website that we really recommend you read. Um, it made me decide to watch that film um, I wanted to watch eight first because obviously the correct order is one, 11, eight, and then two. But I think, I think I'm there. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to get there. Yeah. I mean, the coolest thing about Julia as well is like, she was actually originally meant to be the lead in the first Hellraiser. Like that was Clive Barker's vision for it, but they were like, you need a teenager, you know? So it's really cool to get to kind of see that explored. I'm, I'm so stoked to read that piece. Yeah, we've got we've got all the Hellraiser content you need, right? It's Apparently like so. That's what we specialize in now. Rosie, we will definitely have to have you back at some point. It's been great be to have honored. you as a guest. And so Donato great. is going to take us out in some sort of weird customary manner. Play us off, friend. Weird Henry Cavill blowjob. <laughs> Correct.